0: Let's, let's dive in. You, you started with L.A. Why don't, why don't we go with that one? So how many years have you been in L.A. now? Since your CyArk days, right?
1: It's been um, over 40 years now. And uh,
0: Have you lived in similar neighborhood or similar area of L.A.? Or have you hopped about? No, I, I lived in all different parts
1: of L.A. I lived, you know, when I was a student. Sagar school was in Santa Monica, so I lived there. I lived in Venice Beach. I lived in downtown LA. I lived in Topango Canyon. I lived in Glendale. Uh, you name it. I I've I been mean, in mean, many average people in LA moves around a lot. It's mm. a the city has that kind of a temporary quality to itself.
0: And and what's the are there any specific historic events that jump out at you in that time period? I mean were there um things that you say life before and life after there's something that breaks your timeline into two are there specific moments in la that become key critical points for you in in your life there
1: there are many things happen in la but it's mainly you know there were key events like typical things like riots earthquakes fires etc but there were also more things that were happening in the field of architecture which i was kind of thrown into and i moved here and seventy eight to go to Sire, and I was living up north in Sacramento again in California. I, I was there for a couple of years, so I moved down here to go to sire. and the things were happening at that time78 they were there was like a very interesting energy in L. a architecturally, and that was really influenced by mainly what was happening in the art world. It was also very energetic in, in L. a. And then Cyark, you know, uh, believe it or not, uh, a school uh, popped up, and all these people were connected to Cyark that made LA architecture sort of energetic uh, at that time. You know, the, the younger Frank Gehry, and there was people around him like Tom Main, Mike Rotandi of Morphosis, Coy Howard, Robert Mangurian, Craig Hodgetts uh, as studio works to uh, Bob and. Craig, Fred Fisher. There's Brian Murphy, really interesting guy. Who came out as a construction person, hmm. and he was never admitted to the architectural circle, but he, he was very interesting. And then again, the SIARC, There was um, the architectural world of LA, and there were people in you know a couple of people in UCLA. They eventually came to SIARC too, and you know. So there was a lot of this type of energy, and there was an interesting connection between, you know, Frank Gehry was connected also to a lot of avant-garde artists at the time. It was like, there was a terminology called Cool School. Mm. The the group of Venice Beach painters, um, Ed Ruscha was one of them, Billy Al-Bangston, Ed Moses, Bob Irwin. Larry Bell. They, they were all around. Chuck Arnaldi, Laddie Dill and Ron Davis, which uh, uh, Gary ended up doing uh, his house. And that was the kind of thing that put Gary into the abstract form making. And um, so it, it, that, there was that connection as well. And, you know, something needed a match. and. Um, somebody throw a match, and it just took on. And they were all sort of '68 generation. That they they went through all the protest era and all that. They were all, you know, progressive. And uh, even if they were conservative, they were very smart conservatives.
0: So, when uh, you say when you say energy, do you tie it directly to the progressive ideals, the '68 generation?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that's what i mean
0: so how does that how does that i mean if for instance the shift of tom main from his beginnings towards his you know current periods in terms of scale and in terms of where he's functioning do you see do you see a link there i mean in terms of gary also i suppose you could see comparable things where the beginning radical movements may have become commodified to a degree become exported to a degree is there a loss of energy within those circles you find
1: yeah, the, the the energy I'm talking about is the ability to do things. And at the time, it, it was, you know, Frank brought something very interesting to the scene. You know, he would just slap, you know, throw out chain link fences, two by fours, and, you know, inexpensive materials that easily obtainable from the hardware stores. And they started, they were making things from those materials. And it was somewhat, you know, uh, on the project, kind of a self-training. Uh, that, that's the kind of energy people were making things. It was, La was very physical.
0: So was was Gary avant-garde for his for your time as well, or was he more a product of the times? And was he a common fellow? with a common sort of spirit for that time period?
1: I think it's both, a little bit both. Gary understood the uh, market really well. And he has people like, you know, in order to do a lot of things he did, even though they look inexpensive, they were always done for, you know, people who had money or, you know, art world people, uh, artists themselves or collectors and, and, you know, people with some money, even the early projects. Maybe it was slightly one or two exceptions. But in the same time, there was also this uh, innocence of experimental spirit. That's this 68 spirit, you know, doing something that out of ordinary. They used him, uh, the child, and Day, another big advertisement company that Gary did their offices on Main Street, close relationship. They were into the kind of a, World, that they, they were supported, and they, you know, out of the box thinking. That was they created this ad for for Apple computers. Mm. Chaiat and they. So there was that also in, um, in 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 Gary's the palette. He worked both ways, both in the financial world, the business end of things, but also understanding the market. But also had this, you know, very innocent in his uh, courage and artistic attempt of doing things that nobody else did Mm. so here we go so you know it worked both ways it was very strong and there was a lot of influence in academia you know as the rest of the names that i mentioned like tom main mike rotundi koi howard bob minguri and they were all teaching they were all teaching and they're still teaching if they're on but there may be exception of one or two. I don't think Fred Fisher teaches or Brian Murphy teaches. Uh, but they, they were there and the artists were painting. And um, I don't know how to describe it. The, the energy was right. There was a group of students like us working for these people. Also, you know, we had the energy that we brought from Syark or, you know, other schools maybe L A. and that there was descended from, from all directions. And it, it was an interesting time those years.
0: Well, it's interesting because I mean, West coast in general, I, I hadn't really considered it until you just spoke about it, but imagine LA and, and that portion of California in general, at that time, you're talking about an explosion of an, a new art scene. You're talking about an explosion of the tech sphere. You're talking about the West coast, gathering significant resources in terms of the financial realm the global city and so forth so you get this strange mixture of art tech money plus the 68th generation right i mean yeah. that, that's a very interesting overlap of things that really doesn't i mean there's maybe a few of those elements in other regions of of the states at least but not all four of those altogether. together
1: No, everything was—it's kind of like uh, being in the right time, in the right place, with right um, uh, fuel that had to go. You know and it, 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 the, the whole thing was there and people were looking for like uh, newer things, newer way of doing things and um, you know, I, I, I've written about this in a, a like one of my earlier interviews with Glenn Small. It, it's like there are there are really, it, it, here it is it, it, here's about Frank the, this is 80s enter Reagan era. There was also conservative politics mm. going on. There were also young talented deep post and sometimes accidental constructivist group of Los Angeles architects led by Frank Gehry. I'm reading from my piece now. Mm-hmm. These latter-day stars of the local and international architecture scene made Philip Johnson and the New York Five of the East Coast all news and flew over them all the way to the Europe and didn't tell them what happened in Japan. So they, they, they kind of went both ways. They were the California people of the raw energy, exposing plywood skin, torch cutting, steel rusting, the space ballooning, structure bending, shifting grids and colors, you name it. Ride that building until the fat lady sings a ride from Reagan years of private investments. So this was the architectural context and uh, it it worked out, you know, it's uh, then the examples start to come out, you know, we could talk about them and, and some of them were kind of bad. Some of them are beautiful and nobody was afraid of doing anything. And the, the scale of projects you do in LA is vast. You know, like if you want to be a residential architect, you better live in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And, And because that's what we do here mainly. And, uh, so this project could be done in smaller budgets for uh, like uh, normal people. Eventually it got like out of hand because they became collector items. They started to hire these architects for that reason alone. And uh, so that's the uh, LA avant-garde that came out from here in uh, late 70s and early 80s, which was the most important architectural thing, came out from here, led by Gary, I'll say it here. Basically, Gary was the flagship.
0: Gary, Gary, I see. Huh, interesting. And so I didn't realize Rotundi and Tom Main both worked under Gary.
1: No, they were partners. Morphosis was Tom Main started it, and he had different like students work for him, etc.
0: But they have a link to they have a link to Gary, or did Gary?
1: No, they, they don't even have a link to nobody has worked for Gary except maybe Fred Fisher.
0: Ah, I see. Okay,
1: Fred F- Fisher worked for Gary, but I see, I see. Uh, they, they all knew each other. I mean, it, it, this, there was, Cyart was the hub, you know, there would be lectures, there would be presentations, you know, juries and all that, everything. P- these people met each other, like, because of Sire, and they were closely, you know, related, but Gary was the one already, you know, uh, was recognized internationally. To you know, not as big as what he is today but people knew who Gary was because of his house and uh, what he did with his own house. And uh, other, before he was doing normal apartment buildings in Santa Monica. And, but when he did his house in Ron Davis's house, one of the artists in Cool School group, and, uh, you know, this stuff went off the roof, you know. And nobody was doing asphalt kitchen floors and, you know, Yeah. It corrugated metal for walls and you know, the, the industrial kind of a cut, but he was doing it in such a it's very painterly way.
0: So for that, for that time as well, that was a, a radical thing. It's not a. Um...
1: It was in architecture. Uh, it was like uh, that. Nobody was building that way around the world at the time. Maybe. You know? Hmm. I mean, there, there was a lot of... I mean, Gary comes from kind of a mid-generation of architects in LA. He's, like, he's influenced by people like Rafael Sariana, Gregory Ain. Going back, all these people were working for uh, Richard Neutra and, and Schindler, who was around. So the, the, every this was the previous generation. Out of that came out, like people like Frank Gehry, Ray Cappie, and a number of others that... Um, so LA always had this like a historical. I'm not a historian, but they had a, um, a progression in certain points in LA architectural mm. history.
0: What's Gary's? Uh, he has a sort of ceramic background as well, right? Yeah,
1: he was taking ceramic classes in. Uh, in I mean, in his book it says, and uh, his, his his teacher was uh, Glenn Lukens, Czechoslovakian immigrant, mm. and he was he was teaching ceramics in uh, in. Uh, USC, where Gary was a student taking ceramics classes. So, and Glenn Lukens was having a house built by Rafael Soriano. So, ask Gary, hey, you want to come with me to the construction site? You know, I want you to meet this architect. Mm. And, and and Gary goes over there and sees Rafael Soriano. He's from Rodos, you know, close to where we are from. Mm. You know, he's building, you know, He's a builder, architect, everything in the same time. And, you know, steel frame, you know, you know, experimental things. And, and Gary falls in love with this process and decides to study architecture, and switches to start to take more architectural courses at USC.
0: Do you think that's helpful? A lot of these folks who shift architecture to different areas seem to also come from a slightly outside area. Do you think that helps to look at things differently?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, not everybody goes to architecture school, but a lot of people can think, you know, architecturally. I'm sure he learned things, you know, you always have to learn from somebody else, but it attracts certain type of person. I mean, you know, Gary uh, was one of those people and so are you, so am I, so is everybody else. Is it something, you know, you're always outside at one time. <laughs> then you mm-hmm. get sucked mm-hmm. in, you know. It's not the same Gary coming from outside anymore. You know, he's uh, he's doing giant projects.
0: So, uh, two questions here. One is, what's your analysis of? scale because you you mentioned this with tom main and and now with frank gary too what what do you think happens when you increase that scale is there something that shifts in terms of you know the management structure becoming too overwhelming so you can't approach a project as freely as before is something corporatized and commodified that sucks the energy out from the project what do you think what's your view of that
1: I think I, they spend a lot of time. These people um, who does these large scale projects to stay out of that kind of a grind. They kind of keep under control. Their office doesn't become, you know, too corporate, you know, too big. You know, there's always they just want to design as uh, like a as a design creative office. You know, at one time, you know, one of when I who was talking to Tom and he did say, you know, he wishes never to expand more than 40 people. And, you know, they, I think your question, your, your comment is uh, uh, right on. You have to spend a certain type of energy, I think, to keep the atmosphere of your office if you are getting creative work, if they are knocking your door for creative work. That's why it's it's not comfortable for a lot of people to work in huge factory-like environments. Yeah. So they keep it. They keep it more personal. Uh, I mean, from the picture that I saw, Gary has this beautiful office. You know, big tables with giant models, and he goes there with his, you know, closest uh, people on weekends, and they work on the projects. They are sit around this models. I mean, they're all like documented in movies. And, I, you know, it's a beautiful uh, sort of way of producing what he produces. You know, we're not even talking about the social ramifications and, and, and all, all that. They're just, you know, providing a ser- service for um, a certain clientele. And they are big, you know, uh, big developers. I mean, the size of projects Gary is doing now in Bunker Hill in L.A., the big development. Uh, right across from his, um, Disney concert hall, which is like probably now the most Instagram worthy building in LA. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) That's another thing. I mean, uh, after a certain point, they have to produce certain type of work. And that's also a struggle, like keeping your office small, but also fighting against that. You don't become, you know, um, just hired for just to do, you know, this in a yeah. certain form. Like Gary was dead for a while. You know, everybody was asking a topsy turvy building from him. And, and so uh, I don't know. I mean, did you see his project? It's like Eisen, uh, what, Truman Memorial
0: yeah that was it was surprising I, I couldn't recognize it as a gary i don't know if it's it's uh what you're saying that he's trying to find new grounds for himself
1: well he always had those grounds that project is really relates to his earlier work more so hmm. and it's a very much like a, a venturi and denise scott brown would love the project you
0: know yeah
1: and denise scott brown is still alive uh, God bless. And uh, Gary was there when they were doing that kind of stuff, like in, in Philadelphia, you know, the Franken square. And uh, and if you look at this new project, I, I'm i sorry, is it, I think it's Eisenhower uh, Memorial. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a, is there are similarities in between, especially in the front portion of the public plaza is even the geometry of it, the pattern on the ground and all that. Uh, you know, I, I really liked it the first time I saw it you know, a couple of days ago.
0: Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate when uh, established architects shift direction. I mean, I, I like the, you know, you want to follow that path to see where it goes. The sort of repetition Freedom. of style. Yeah, repetition of style. I find a bit, I, I imagine if you were working in that office or in charge of that office, it would become sort of a, a grind, to use your words. Um, but to have that kind of break. I imagine it would be quite liberating at that moment. So I'm curious what the Gary we see after this point is. So how do you, I mean, I guess if we can bring that back to LA, what do you, it seems like you speak of the past LA with this energy, with a certain nostalgia and you're, Mm -hmm. you're set to leave LA in a few years, I guess. How do you, how do you see LA now?
1: Uh, LA is a very like a living city to me and, um, it's it's vast and it's it's spread out. And uh but it's very alive, you know, if you you know, it's like uh, any any point that you zero in because a lot of things are happening. I I, I really enjoy living in a way. Um you know, there are certain things I'm also interested in looking, you know, I could also live in a dense urban environment in in Izmir, Turkey, for example. And, uh, you know, and I, I, whenever I go and stay uh, elongated times in Tijuana, Mexico, I enjoy that too. And, and, and Tijuana is not like a beautiful city in terms of, you don't tell people that you go to Tijuana and see this building. I mean, there are things like that, but you go there to see stories and, you know, how the, the city is like growing out of economical difficulties, but still growing and uh, and there are good parts now and always, this and it's it changing the, the city is changing in front of you LA still has the possibility of changing that way I mean in New York you know you change the style of the skyscraper mm. the new mm. facade and all. everybody looks at it wow for two minutes you know but here is uh, it's a different situation
0: what about the energy you spoke of do you think it's still there the spirit of 68
1: yeah, LA always has the uh, like energy, but in the same time, it's a LA needs something like a major thing to happen to it, mm. and and it's it's so vast, it's almost like impossible. So you have to do it in increments and connect them. It's like suggest that kind of. uh uh, design pattern because it's, it's a hard to do things in solid blocks like from here to all the way to ocean we're going to do this that's impossible that's crazy and so it, the things happen in different centers in LA different municipalities and then they get connected you know and now metro is doing a really good work on it before it was the freeways Hmm. And the streets, you know, street grid exists. LA has two distinct grid systems, you know, imperial grid and, and, and then the Mexican grid. Yeah. And one response is to um, the site orientation uh, of uh, a, a sun. It goes back to getting like sunlight mm-hmm. in, in spanish grid and so it, it's a it's a city that the new things can happen even if they are in different places so there has this uh, network you know you can you can visualize a network you know and whatever the distance is they're becoming you know closer as the new modes of transportation is found you know there's the, the metro system, for example, is spreading as like the buses and the cars are getting more efficient and smaller. Mm. So um, you know, like the, this COVID uh, nineteen, since uh, it started, the you know all these restrictions started and last. March LA has came back to it's like a capacity of freeways and all that now you can just you know fly from one neighborhood to the other without getting caught in a freeway traffic that much so uh, less people are driving and the the infrastructure of it is you know it's not so bad but you know if those people never come back to drive in the city that would be wonderful
0: but you know (laughs) (laughs)
1: As soon as they return, it's going to be clogged again. It's going to take, you know, an hour to get from point A to point B. doesn't matter how close they are.
0: (laughs) Yeah. How do you, so LA retains a spirit for you, this, this sort of renewal, liveliness, and it sounds like you described Tijuana actually in fairly similar terms although maybe more focused on the dynamics of Tijuana rather than the, the sort of built environment of it. What about the architecture discussions in the architecture circles of LA then versus now? I mean, in terms of the avant-garde, radical, crit- critical way of approaching things in LA when you were a student back in the 70s, compared to now, how do you see incoming students and the interests that they have? Is there a very distinct shift.
1: Yeah, there's a distinct shift. Before LA wasn't that hard to live. You know, things were affordable. LA is dealing, you know, uh, not, don't let me sugar call it LA. It's like, uh, it's right now, it's just uh, really bad things are happening all over. Is there's homeless people. I walk out from uh, our apartment and then there are people Living in tents, you know, under freeways. And uh, there's like, uh, before it was an affordable city, you could come from somewhere else, from Europe, from uh, Mexico, from South America, anywhere, Um, Asia, and you could still do things here relatively easily. Right now, it's not like that. It's a very difficult city to survive, you know, because so expensive. And uh, housing is a problem. The, you know, the health care is, you know, is no good. And, you know, all this, you know, social uh, dysfunctions, uh, the, the infrastructural errors of LA is now like it's all ahead, like many other places in the world. And so there are reasons to leave LA too.
0: <laughs> what about architectural circles, though? I mean, in, in terms of architectural interest, do you see... Do you see the spirit that you feel your generation had coming to L.A.? Do you think that has shifted?
1: It's, it's more like whoever is here already kind of a world. Hmm. It's not it doesn't have too much international traffic anymore. And now it's mainly people who know the place who are here. I mean, this is a decent residential level and, you know, somewhat of an urban scale level too. There's still like a very much alive community to young people doing still interesting stuff, you know, that spirit somewhat, I'm glad you asked that. It, that spirit is remained. You can still do things in you know, LA. Like you can still build buildings hmm. and you know, experiment, do things in an interesting way. And there is that kind of a market always. And you know, the self-producing architecture is still very alive.
0: Hmm. We had a, a faculty member in grad school who was talking about how, I think he was probably educated in the 60s maybe 50s but he was talking about how in his undergrad the most of your studio projects revolved around social housing and you know the the issue of providing equitable footholds within cities and so forth and he was asking us what our undergraduate studio projects you know the programs and the briefs we were given what they were focused on and it really actually struck a chord because thinking back to our undergrad it was um i started in 2003 or 2005 i think it was museums Sort of governmental buildings, residential libraries, buildings, libraries, <laughs> but none of that social spark that, you know, seemed to be embedded within previous generations for considerable periods of time. What seems to be happening now at least, you see a lot more of the social housing component begin to emerge back into studios. I, I imagine it has something to do with the housing crises that you're talking about that every single city seems to be suffering from, but it's quite interesting that LA has managed to keep that kind of Energy is a good word, I suppose, but that spirit of 68 somehow, even if it had dimmed at certain points, it seems like as you're describing it, there's always a pocket or a network within which it managed to maintain itself. One question. So you're when did you begin writing? Is this is this a pre architectural thing? Is this a post-architectural thing? Did you did you get into sort of this journalistic writer observer model? Um, when when did it begin for you?
1: I always enjoy writing, even like starting from elementary school. You know I, I kept diaries and things like that. Not that I collected them I'm you know I moved from many many places you know you start to lose things and but you know I always kind of enjoy writing it was always a place to go for me and I continue with uh, different intensities you know throughout my life and uh, architectural uh, writing is you know the, the architecture was always an uh, interest but uh, I, I wrote less in school about it in terms of you know, like the published articles. We we would we had a group called ABC, and then we would publish things in LA Architecture Magazine, actually. And they were crazy there at the time. They were criticizing constructivism and deconstructivism and people. But you know, the the really like a longer uh, articles and start uh, started with with Archonnex, and I, I start to write for architect And they kept me in a certain discipline, you know, more uh, of a, but I had pieces unrelated to architecture too, you know, and it's, it's been around. Uh, I'm not an English speaking uh, writer, so, uh, (laughs) you know. You know, uh, which, you know, gives me kind of a freedom as much as embarrassment. And so uh, I like to write about the ideas of things. Why am I thinking, thinking the way I'm thinking about them? other than, uh, I don't know, the correct sort of uh, academic writing and doing things seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a serious writer.
0: How long? How long have you uh, been at Arcanex? I was, i don't know—like fifteen years. I was looking at a Glenn Small interview, which is one of the earliest ones I did. Uh,
1: you know, like 2006. You know, 2020s. Archinect became like an old <laughs> sort of a publication now. You know, it's been around for 25 years almost.
0: What's, what's the link to Glenn Small, by the way, before tying back to your writing? But what's, the, what's your relationship with him? How did that start?
1: But Glenn uh, is one of the creative founders of SciArt. You know, they were all teaching at Cal Poly Pomona. Uh, Ray Cappy was the director, chair of the department, and they started to do things. And then in, in Cal Poly Pomona, being a state university, they have to follow a strict sort of curriculum thing. And they said, you know, you cannot do this here. You have to do this. And Ray and Glenn and uh, Tom Main was also part of the group. Bill Simonian. And um, I got, you know, each time they're saying, like, you don't want to miss any. Adi Ladi is, you know, an artist, graphic designer. So they, and there's 50 students, you know, they said, screw this. We're going to start our own school. And that's how Cyax started. So Glam was part of that, so he was uh, a big part of Sire. And uh, all the earlier creative and progressive images, Im- images of Sire was Glam. Glenn. Glenn Small was doing all the futuristic stuff, you know, and uh, where you could consider Tom and Eric Moss a little bit more like a postmodernists. They were trying to find the style. Uh, He was at the school, so that's where I met him.
0: So he was your teacher and... Uh,
1: I never took his class. (laughs) I never took his class. He asked me personally one time, I have to tell this. He said, I would like to see you in my studio next semester. And, you know, I just came from New York and, you know, my mentor was John Knight, who's a conceptual artist and is still around. And so, you know, he already introduced me to people like Dan Graham, Klaus Oldenberg, Koja Van Bruggen in New York. He was like friends with these people. And when I came back, you know, my way of looking at architecture has changed. And, uh, you know, I was like a fourth year student and Mm. undergraduate, but Exposed to these people, I mean, you know, can you imagine? You know, like a, a you know Klaus Oldenburg Studio is giving you a tour, you know, <laughs> in 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 Soho, and uh, and so when I came back, Glenn asked me, he wants to see me in the studio. I said, <laughs> Glenn, I'm not interested in that stuff. I mean, it's like <laughs> naive. <laughs> Uh, it's like I'm not interested in like your progressive futurism. I'm looking at like kind of a conceptual art and uh, and, and criticism and stuff like this. So, but we remain friends. You know, he would ask me. You know, he, he, as a student, he would ask me as a jury that I would come. It would maybe intimidate some students. But SciArc uh, was like that. You know, huh. there was always connection between the students. Everybody knew each other closely.
0: The well, that that's a that that's an interesting one because you're. I mean, it ties back to the question I have about writing. Is that you're you have a very soft approach to writing, which I find quite rare in architecture. Typically, with an architecture, a bit less so in urbanism, but still, you can see it pretty dominantly there. There's this manifesto certainty and and sort of a self justified. I don't know. Ego isn't the right word, but there's definitely uh, people take hard stances instead of blurry ones. And your approach seems softer. But the fourth year student that you just described yourself as seemed actually like more the you know, hard headed fellow. So how do you see your voice shifting over time? I mean, has your writing always retained that kind of soft texture to it or?
1: I mean, well, look, when I said that to Glenn, we were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was still that, like there's a softness to it. But I've already decided, like, you know, like uh, I want to spend remaining time in school. I'm going to look into this thing. Yeah kind of a thing, and it wasn't like a Glenn's picture. And Glenn <laughs> liked students that, you know, who were like talking to him and he, he gave you a certain kind of a credibility if you are talking to him about architecture in a very interesting way. And so that's why he wanted me in his class. He always like a pick and choose kind of a guy. Mm. He choose, pick the students. You know, and a lot of my close friends were good friends of Glenn. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, good students of Glenn. It's like I, I already knew his work and I respect it and I loved it. And, but it wasn't like the stuff that I want to do that next semester he wants me to, you know, come to his class. And uh, Anyway, so, uh, but the, the, coming back to riding, there is that, you know, I need to be able to, like, enjoy riding it. Uh, so I kind of laugh at it too, you know, if I see funny parts to it. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's why I'm not claiming to be a hard headed you know, like a Eden historian or, uh, you know, academician that, you know, I'm not an academic at all. And, uh, and so I'm more like a sidewall critic. They used to call, uh, what's his name? The New York. Uh, I, hit, I hit him out here the other day. Sidewall critic. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh there there's that and and I enjoy about that you know riding that part of riding is kind of what I can handle I'm able to say something you know it's like there's a lot of nuances in it you know I hope they come out too as much as my ability of softness
0: what i find is you you tend to um weave this I mean, soft is the word that still comes to mind, but it's not a um, it's not a domineering kind of narrative. But within that narrative, you find these very sharp critiques, also or critiques or analyses embedded into it, also. So it's a strange combination in that you. It's almost like eating ice cream and then encountering a you know a chunk of ice embedded into it. <laughs> it bothers
1: you.
0: <like> <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. That's um, I find that it's quite interesting because. Um, it's a style that I, I suppose I envy to a degree because the you, you can drop a point and then just let it sit without having to press endlessly against it, which I find is the common routine, at least that I tend to fall into with writing. And I think it's probably linked to sort of architectural and urban writing as a whole is that you make a point and then incessantly try to sort of reinforce it and argue it. Whereas yours is sort of, you say it and if the wind takes it in the right direction, so be it but you've you know you're weaving the the
1: it's more conversationalist i suppose yeah Yeah. and 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 and, and that's in a way it works for me because i'm able to have more people read them yeah and 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 people can relate to that kind of information also and i'm consciously doing that you know i don't want to go too far out and using certain language or vocabulary, you know, I don't want to sweat about them either, you know, and uh, it's to me, it's like more continuous sort of a weaving, like you have said, and God, I would love to have this tape, <laughs> kind of nobody really talked this extensively about how I write, except my wife, and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear all this stuff, If I see some kind of like a weakness, uh, you know, I just stop there and then I don't touch it. And, you know, sometimes I come back to it. Sometimes, you know, like you don't do it.
0: Can you talk a bit more about that? So specifically about your craft of writing, what do you what's the process for you? Do you do multiple drafts? Do you write at a specific point in time?
1: I do it. It's like I don't do a lot of drafts, you know, you know, I, I have like a three, four average. Mm. And and I don't, I don't like sometimes also save the previous uh, draft. I, I kind of, uh, you know, mm. uh, maybe the first original one is always there. And then I just keep writing it and I take out, they put it in. Otherwise, it becomes too much. And, you uh, know, I, I write in uh, spurts, you know, I will sit down and write a page or two and then it will go to a, you know, certain period. But sometimes I I do like an article, like just sit down and do it, and and that happens too. I've done things like that, so it's more like a a journal kind of a writing, like a journalistic kind of a writing. Mm. It has to be fast. It has to you have to get the if the idea is strong, you you should be able to get it out there. And I'm not arguing something theoretical or anything like that. So I have to be you know. Like I said, you know, it's a different kind of a writing. It's more like a folks kind of writing mm. to making sure everything I say, you know, it's an opinion writing uh, if, if it's for architectural news or it's like a narrative writing if it's, you know, I'm, I'm doing an article
0: on something.
1: I also enjoy doing interviews with people and, and those are like really strange interviews in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I found those fascinating to watch. I, I think I've the most recent one I watched of yours was with Michael Rotundi, and you're sitting on a—it's an old one—but you're sitting on a couch with him. And I've never seen an interview that's both so comfortable. Like it's such a different rhythm than most interviews you encounter. Like you're okay with pauses, you're okay with looking at your notes, and it's clear you're both you know close friends to a degree. It's a straight again. It sort of strikes me similar to your writing is that you're you're able to weave this. Unusual rhythm, but also extract very critical pieces of information from him. So it's a it's a strange one. It's you're on edge, but you're very comfortable at the same time watching the interview. But the the interesting one about your writing that you mentioned: try to keep the drafts to a, a lower amount, not saving the drafts. I imagine that probably has something to do with you know if you pushed it too far, you'd lose that conversational quality.
1: Exactly. That happens.
0: Yeah. The, the similar similarity I find is we there are these YouTube videos uh, through GQ on designers. They do these very quick interviews with designers. And there's one about Okisato. And he says something really interesting at the end. Where One is he says, always go with your first idea, which is an interesting way to be productive. Just sort of refine the idea over and over again. But the point that links to your writing, I think, is he says, never hold on to your idea for too long and never fall in love with it. So it's sort of like produce the work and get it out there. And if you hold on to it too long, it's almost like a, the way he describes it. It's almost like holding a flower. If you hold it for too long, you're gonna it's gonna wither.
1: Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's like a live lesson for many other. If you know that one well, <laughs> you're okay. You know. <laughs> You can survive COVID, you know the <laughs> principle. <laughs> don't, 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 you know, like uh, grab on it too strongly. That, that, that's why you know. I think it's important for people are able to see their uh, their own jokes or funny moments, and you know, kind of be able to. I'm not going to say don't take things seriously. I'm a super serious person. But in the same time, you know, they are uh, they, in writing. I like that kind of uh, looking at things uh, not too hard or like impossible to change. You know, I, I love changing ideas, too. You know, yeah. like, uh, OK, my mind has changed. Well, you said this. Last week, well, I changed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's a it's a a kind of a hyper philosophy position. It's like being able to change your mind. It's 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 a human right. (laughs) I think. (laughs) (laughs) So things happen. You know, you start from something. For me and uh you know often i will change my mind and I say you know why am i writing this or you know this doesn't make any sense i started this why am i even arguing it? i don't think that way i think the opposite way
0: hmm.
1: it, the, the things happen like they shift and all that it's sort of you know the describing the scene in architecture in 80s los angeles you know things keep shifting and you have to take a, a new position about something and a new detail emerges and it's like a ongoing uh, sort of a hyper world. You know, everything around us is kind of like that right now. I don't know.
0: So how do you do that? I mean, how do you do Um, I think, I I think a very common trait that architects have for sure, but I suppose it's just a broader human trait. I I certainly have it. But when you take a stance, there's an urge to defend it, even to the point where you can't think calmly about it, right? For you to be able to shift your opinion in the middle of a Article: How do you keep a cool enough and calm enough head to be able to, you know, establish self-critique, that kind of reflection at that moment of production?
1: Well, I, mean, I feel like I have to tell, you know, like why I change my mind too, hmm. and uh, and often it's a it's like a whole new um, sort of a way of looking at it, and maybe it becomes like the third thing at that point, and it's no longer A or B, but out of that it becomes C. You know and uh, mm. and then sea becomes like much more interesting more open. It's almost like uh, jumping into a thousand planes <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> plateaus mm. <laughs> and, and it's a, it's like a a certain freedom that you know you give to yourself and it is is a wonderful thing i mean you don't you might arrive in the similar places if you start to logically and you know very methodically think about it. But you're also taking a chance, also, you know, and uh, it, it, you could end up, you know, uh, uh, being on the wrong end too. It's uh, there's all those possibilities. I don't know, and 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 I, I don't think about them. I I just you know like if there's an idea, I follow it. And it keeps me interested more. I finish that episode, and then you know I can come back to it.
0: And if it's wrong, it's wrong, right? You yeah. you can change your mind. Uh...
1: It's wrong. It's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I tell that to my architecture students too. I, don't you know? Stop being correct. You know, make mistakes <laughs> and stuff so we can talk about them. You know. And and they, it makes them feel uh, comfortable with themselves and they start to, you know, be a little bit more freer to put out ideas and, you know, propositions.
0: Yeah. So th- th- actually with this, um, I mean, I could talk writing... Um with you for endless amounts of time. I, I do have to let you go. But the one thing uh, in terms of inspiration, actually, so in terms of your writing with the podcast, I know one thing I've had a lot of stress about is just editing episodes. So they become better, more clearly understood and so on. But that comes with this hindrance or baggage of being afraid of making mistakes while you talk (laughs) so in in the spirit of your soft way of writing uh, what i'm going to try with this episode is just to produce it in a very raw format without any subsequent editing and so on and put it out as quickly as possible so
1: okay well whatever you you do with it jam if you if you have any additional questions whatever you know like yeah you know let's keep in touch anyway right
0: yeah we can do we can do coffee talks with orhan (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or i might do something and i might uh, you know like uh, bring you in
0: yeah no that'd be great anyway thank you orhan take care okay thank you okay have a great day bye-bye bye